Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Well, six years ago this month, Heather and I were married at Christ our King Anglican Church up in New Braunfels. It was my last service as um, one of the assisting priests up at COK because I would begin my new role um, as the then assistant rector here at All Saints almost immediately when we got back from our, uh, from our honeymoon. We got back from our honeymoon the next Sunday. I was on duty right here. <laughs> As it was that transition time, the guests and the altar party um, consisted of folks from both parishes, from, from All Saints and from COK. Many of you remember that. Well, like every wedding, ours had its share of minor mishaps. So, for instance, the baker um, called Heather the morning of the wedding and said she wasn't sure she could finish the bridal cake in time for the wedding. <laughs> And then Heather called me, and I um, and my best man and I uh, spent the rest of the morning tracking down potential alternatives. My my best man Bob was very good at is very good at problem solving. And then later on, the uh, bridesmaids all got lost in downtown New Braunfels on the way to Christ Our King. They were all from Albuquerque, and uh, things are a little bit different in the hill country of Texas than it is in Albuquerque. For instance, you know, in Albuquerque, they've got the mountains, so you always know whether you're heading east or west. It's not a problem. And everybody that moves here from Albuquerque says, I don't know where I'm going. I don't have mountains. <laughs> and then there was a mishap that is very reminiscent of today's gospel. We ran out of wine. Um, specifically, we ran out of consecrated wine during communion. And the poor deacon, who had only been on the job for about a month or so, didn't know what to do about it. Fortunately, our own Father Marcus, um, who at the time was a veteran deacon, stepped in to show him the ropes, and more wine was consecrated by the priests, and everything did turn out just fine. So as I said, that memory is very similar to what happened in today's gospel lesson, the wedding at Cana from John 2. So please open your Bibles to John 2, beginning at the first verse. John 2, verse 1. And this passage can also be found in your prayer book on page 113. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So last week we celebrated the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan. And in the context of John's gospel, the baptism occurs in the previous chapter. So we, we have kind of a setup for the timeline here in John's gospel. If you just turn one page back, we have um, about halfway through John 1, the baptism of our Lord that whole Behold the Lamb of God passage. And then that's followed by two days of the Lord recruiting, of the Lord calling those first disciples, those first apostles. Uh, 19th century priest, uh, historian, and Jewish convert Alfred Edersheim, he says that the custom in the first century Galilee was that maidens were married on Wednesday and then widows who were being remarried were married on Thursday, which means that um, Sunday would have been when uh, the Lord was baptized because as our text said, on the third day. So we have Sunday, our Lord is baptized. Then on Monday, he calls, um, he calls the, the very first disciples, he calls Andrew and, and, and Peter and James and John. And then on Tuesday, he calls Nathaniel 
and Philip. At that call of the apostle Nathanael, Jesus reveals to Nathanael that he had seen him presumably in a vision under the fig tree while Nathanael was at prayer or study. Now, Alfred Eversheim tells us that Nathanael was probably from Cana of Galilee. And Nathanael then says, he declares that Jesus is the king of Israel and the son of God. Because Nathanael immediately saw, because of that vision that Jesus had, he told him how he had seen him. Nathanael realized that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And Jesus answered him, saying that he would see greater things than these. And so as we know from the end of today's gospel passage, it didn't take very long for that prediction to come true. So in the meantime, we have this wedding, though, at Nathaniel's village at Cana of Galilee. So the current opinion among most archaeologists is that Cana of Galilee is the modern site of Chirbat Cana, a site about eight miles or so north of Nazareth. So was Jesus invited to the wedding because he and his followers were staying with Nathanael after he had called him to the ministry? Or did he meet Nathanael while he was on his way to that pre-planned wedding? We're not really sure. But there is this sense where Jesus attending a wedding at all at this point can seem a little bit odd. After all, as we talked about last week, Jesus had just been commissioned by his father three days ago to begin the ministry, to bring in the kingdom of God. And then he spends two days doing so, recruiting those helpers, recruiting those apostles, those ambassadors for the kingdom. So if Jesus is, is, has got to get about his father's business of preaching the gospel and bringing in the kingdom of God, does he really have time to take a detour at a wedding for a party? Well, St. Augustine, St. Augustine tells us that on the contrary, this wedding at Cana is a microcosm of his mission uh, here on earth. St. Augustine says, he writes this, the Lord was invited and came to a wedding. Is it any wonder that he who came to that house for a wedding came to this world for a wedding? Therefore, he has a bride here whom he has redeemed by his blood and to whom he has given the Holy Spirit as a pledge. So in other words, that whole mission of Jesus was to bring home a bride. So it makes sense that he began his ministry at a wedding. So not only though are Jesus and his disciples at the wedding, but we see that our Lord's blessed mother is also there. 17th century Anglican divine John Cosin observed that Mary was likely invited first because of another first century custom, which was to invite mature, godly, and modest women to help the bride and to be role models for her. Cosin says that this indicated that the couple were taking holy marriage seriously. And this may be why Jesus and his disciples then come later to the feast. Cosin then gives us some advice for our own Christian marriages. He writes, the only reason why Christ does not show up at more of our weddings nowadays is that we do not first invite his mother, which is to say we do not invite sobriety and moderation together with a holy intention to be joined together now and for the rest of our lives in the fear of God and in the keeping of his commandments. And we, we ought to take Cosin's, Cosin's admonishment seriously if we're going to have our marriages be pictures 
of Christ in the church, as we're told it's supposed to be per Ephesians chapter 5. We ought to come into marriage differently than the world does. The world looks at marriage as ultimately being about my own personal fulfillment and happiness, right? And there's, of course, that escape clause of irreconcilable differences when I don't fulfill, feel fulfilled or happy. But Christian marriage, rather, is about honoring God by loving that closest of our neighbors, that is our spouse, as we love ourselves with the self-sacrificial love of Christ and submitting as unto the Lord, even as this church submits to Christ. And again, the Blessed Virgin Mary is an example of that kind of submission. Let's pick up in, uh, in, chap- in verse 3 of chapter 2, John 2, 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So when Mary tells Jesus about the lack of wine, his response can seem a bit cold or harsh, almost a rebuke. A lot of commentators kind of focus on that. But instead of doubting Mary's love, because it really isn't as harsh as it sounds in English. In, in, in the Greek, it's not like that. But Mary does not at all doubt Jesus' love. She doesn't doubt that he's going to take care of things. Rather, she sends the servants to him by faith, trusting in his goodness, in his kindness, in his compassion. Martin Luther writes, God's kindness and not our feelings remains in us. Here you see his mother retains an unfettered faith and holds up an example for us. She is certain that he will be merciful, even if she does not feel it. And it's, and it's certain that she may feel differently than she believes. But thus she freely commends the matter to his kindness and demands from him neither time nor place, neither manner nor measure, neither person nor name. He'll do it when it pleases him. And that's the kind of faith that Christian marriage is supposed to illustrate, a marriage that is centered on Christ. So let's pick up with verse 6. Now, there were, sti- there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So St. John calls the miracle at Cana the first of his signs. In the Gospel of John, there are seven signs, each of which reveals Jesus' messianic character and glory in an extraordinary miracle. In today's Gospel, we see the miracle in the exceptionally large quantity and exceptionally high quality of wine. Six stone jars with 20 or 30 gallons of wine becomes the equivalent of 600 to 900 bottles of wine. 
even if the whole village was at the wedding feast. It's not a big place, Cana of Galilee. Even if the whole village is at the wedding, pe- wedding feast, that is still a very large amount of wine to go around. Martin Bucer, a German reformer who helped Thomas Cramer write the first book of Common Prayer, he snarkily pointed out that some groups of Christians would probably have rebuked or even excommunicated Jesus for such extravagance that could potentially lead to drunkenness. <laughs> this isn't what good religious people do. <laughs> That's too much wine. But there's an important spiritual lesson here. In the Old Testament, wine was a sign of joy in God's blessing. Running out of wine was a symbol of the barrenness of first century Judaism. And we need Christ to give joy, blessing, and life to our religion. St. Augustine says that the tasteless water represented the Old Testament scriptures while the savory wine represented the gospel. And when Jesus opened up the scriptures to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, showing how the Old Testament was really about him, the disciples said that their hearts burned within them. Augustine says that they metaphorically became intoxicated with joy as Jesus turned the water of the Old Testament into the wine of the gospel. This is what he writes. When he turned the water itself into wine, he showed us that the ancient scripture comes from him too. For by his order, the jars were filled. This scripture too is indeed from the Lord, but it has no taste if Christ is not understood in it. Just as Jesus did not let the party be without wine, but rather provided for the feast extravagantly, so does he provide for us. He gives us his grace extravagantly. And if it weren't for his extravagant grace, Sinners like you and me could not be saved. Martin Bucer writes, as he would not let these guests to lack wine, so also he will not allow us to lack anything, especially spiritual goods related to our salvation. These are certain and bequeathed to us by the Spirit of God. And speaking of certain signs from God's Spirit, don't miss the sacramental imagery in the wine which should always remind us of Christ's blood and communion. This is a theme that the church fathers particularly notice. Fifth century, Bishop Caesarius writes, for example, it is he who came down to earth to invite his beloved to marriage with his highness, giving her for a present the token of his blood and intending to give later the dowry of his kingdom. St. Augustine writes, Therefore he has a bride here whom he has redeemed by his blood and to whom he has given the Holy Spirit as a pledge. St. Cyril of Jerusalem writes, He once changed water into wine by a word of command at Cana in Galilee. Should we not believe him when he changes wine into blood? And then we have this sung poetic sermon by 6th century deacon and Jewish convert who's known to us as Romanus Melodus, which I think just means the singing Roman. When Christ, right? I have some Latin teachers in the, in, in the, in the congregation. I am not the Latin guy. But this, is what, this is what Romanus writes. This, is what, this, this was the lyrics for his song. When Christ, as a sign of his power, clearly changed the water into wine, all the crowd rejoiced, for they considered the taste marvelous. 
Now we all partake at the banquet of the church, for Christ's blood is changed into wine, and we drink it with holy joy, praising the great bridegroom. For he is the true bridegroom, the son of Mary, the word before all time, who took the form of a servant, he who has in wisdom created all things. Of course, in the context, this is the context of the passage. He's not, this is not a passage that's addressing Holy Communion, but Holy Communion is addressing this passage, right? That's the way these types of things work. Every time we come to the Lord's table by faith with thanksgiving, we are having a preview of that great wedding feast of the Lamb spoken of in Revelation and a type of which we see at the wedding in Cana. Every time we come to the Lord's table by faith with thanksgiving, we are reminded he is indeed our bridegroom who has given his life for us. And every time Christians are joined as man and wife by Christ and his church, we see a picture of Christ and his church, a picture of Christ's extravagant, intoxicating grace. And every time we come to either sacrament, we hear the voice of the church echoing our Lord's blessed mother saying, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. May it be so in our parish, our families, and in our lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs>